0: Welcome to Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Health law broken down through expert discussion, real client issues, and real life experiences. Breaking barriers to understanding complex healthcare issues is our job.
1: And good morning or good afternoon, whenever you're listening to this. This is uh, another episode of Health Law Talk here at Shahardi Sherman-Williams. Conrad Meyer in the booth today in the studio uh, with Rory Bellina, uh, Chris Martin, a cadre of healthcare lawyers, and today we have a very special guest in the studio, uh, Dr. Eric Hansen. Eric, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So today, we we thought we'd do a little something a little more casual because everything's been very topic-oriented with respect to... Uh, previous episodes. So in this one, we're gonna have a just have like a sit a sit down and a cup of coffee with Dr. Hansen and bring him into speed and help us learn more about uh, mental health. Uh, Dr. Hansen, I understand you're a PGY four going into psychiatry here in New Orleans. Is that correct? Correct. And for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and and, and where you're from, how you got there. What is a PGY four? Uh, because I, I sure didn't know years ago, so hopefully you can figure that out, and we can see where we go from here.
2: So PGY-4 is a uh, fourth-year resident. Uh, it's uh, it's a name for any specialty. Uh, specifically, though, I'm a psychiatry PGY-4. Um, different residencies have different lengths. Uh, for psychiatry, it's four years, Then after the fourth year, you decide whether you want to do a fellowship in anything more specific or just be a general adult psychiatrist. Uh, so I'm a fourth year, uh, psychiatry resident. Uh, I'm from New Orleans from, from Kenner and Metairie actually. Uh, I live in Metairie now. Um, uh, so yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh,
3: what, uh, so what led you into psychiatry?
2: So, you know, uh, it's an interesting process. You're as a med student, you do rotations in in all the different fields and then you're expected to sort of make a decision about what you want to do and it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed psychiatry rotation the most. I felt like I was really helping people. Um, I thought it was fun, too. Uh, I thought it would uh, never get old, which I think is – is uh, uh, it was important to me. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff that we do every day gets kind of monotonous and, and routine, and I always thought it was interesting. And I really felt like I was, you know, helping helping people.
3: So you mentioned that – you mentioned that this rotation has been four years, correct? what's that this rotation you're in your fourth year correct Correct. yeah so you know on all of our previous episodes the topic of COVID has come up and i figured let's just get it out in the front right now uh so you started before COVID, and you're now continuing with your fourth year so tell us what residency has been like you know when COVID kind of started as it was ramping up and you know now we're on the, the lower end luckily in new orleans but tell us a little bit about how everything's been going since this pandemic
2: so residency at baseline is, is tough, um, and, and COVID certainly didn't help with that. Um, you know, the, the COVID spikes in the hospital, that aside, because, you know, that's been, been talked about at nauseum, it's been difficult to, to do uh, the, the level of care that we were previously accustomed to. Um, you know, visits having to switch to, to telehealth and then the complications with that as far as accessibility – uh, a lot of patients in psychiatry are less fortunate. Uh, may not have access to, to, to telehealth uh, technology and stuff like that. Um, also, you know the the assessment of a patient and how they're doing, um, their status is harder over a, a video visit. Uh, so that's been difficult. The other thing is, uh, you know, it's it's a struggle, especially at the beginning, to make sure that you get good training. Because with a lot of the services cut back, you know, you are a resident; you're supposed to be learning, supposed to be training. And so, having uh, adequate patients to see while everything is kind of shut down uh, made it a little difficult. But after a while, things kind of shook out, and uh, you know, uh, it, all the all the all the kings got worked out.
4: So tell the folks for who don't maybe know what, exactly what telehealth is. Can you kind of walk us through that a little bit
2: so there's there's several different platforms that it's used. Uh, it can be as simple as a phone call. Um, it can be uh, also video where you're you're logging on to some platform, a patient at home or in some other location is logging on, and then you're you're talking with them, seeing them uh, virtually, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, over a video, like you would uh, Zoom or Skype or, or what have you.
3: We've had a couple of guests come on already, and we've had some other specialties talk to us about telehealth during COVID. And, you know, um, for some of them, honestly, they were okay with it. They thought that it increased their patient access. They were able to do things more efficiently. They could, um, it was just, it was, it was okay. How is psychiatry maybe the same, or maybe? different. I mean, have you enjoyed the shift to telehealth? Do you feel that you're treating your patients of the same quality or, or would you rather be face-to-face like we are today?
2: So I agree. I, I actually do like I do like telehealth a lot. Uh, I think it does increase access to care overall. Um, it's, it's easier for someone to maybe step out at work and log on to a visit for 30 minutes instead of having to take off the whole day to drive down to the city to, to go to an appointment. Also, you know, sometimes things can be uh, handled quicker over telehealth. You know, it's just easy to hop on. You know, the, the major consequences of it are just it's it's not the same type of assessment. You know, if someone's telling you how they feel, part of it in, in evaluating them is is listening to what they're saying, but the other part is observing them and seeing what they're doing, how they're reacting, how they're telling you. And you know with a, a video alone, even if everything works completely how it's supposed to it's difficult, and that's not even talking about the technological challenges with internet connection and calls dropping you know the the, the there's there's uh there's been so many times where I'm starting a visit and I end up just hanging up and, and calling them on the phone because there's the video's frozen, All I right. can't hear them stuff like that.
1: And I know, I mean, I've read this, and I don't know how accurate it is, and I'm going to say the percentage, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, so you're going to have to correct me. But is it 80 percent or 90 percent of nonverbal uh, of nonverbal is communication, nonverbal cues? Uh, is it a high number like that? I can't remember. Your nonverbals tell a lot about you sure. in terms about how you're feeling. Yeah. But I forgot the number. But yeah, I, I, I don't know, know it's really it's. high. You know, and I, and I guess following to your point. Going on a telemedicine route, even though we're increasing access, it's hard. Is it? Let me ask you: Is it hard for you to read a patient's nonverbals to assist you in making an assessment about the patient? Have you found that to be a challenge, or is it is it the same as seeing a patient in a room? Or you know, what what can you say about nonverbal communication using telemedicine?
2: It's absolutely more difficult. Um, I mean, so first of all, you're looking at this tiny little portion of them, you know, their head, maybe part of their neck and shoulders, uh, you know, and so you're missing a lot of times their hand, you know, if they're anxious and fidgeting. Right. Um, Sometimes medicines that we have cause a lot of side effects of abnormal movements, something like that, and you really just miss those. You don't even get to see them. Um, you know unless you have them pull the camera back and then go walk around their living room or something like that uh, it could, it can be difficult
1: yeah I've, i figured that i mean i saw so I, I mean I was thinking about yes telemedicine we 've heard on previous episodes how wonderful it is in in terms of you know, cutting the red tape, giving the access that instead of maybe seeing eight or 10 patients a day, for example, uh, some of our previous guests have said, well, we could see 15 to 20 patients a day. So from that standpoint, it looks like it's it's, it's, it's get or gaining access. Uh, what Do you see telemedicine now, even though let's say post COVID, because like Rory said, we're coming on the downslope, right? Thank, thank you. Uh, amen to that. But do you see telemedicine, being integrated
2: into your practice real time? absolutely, absolutely. I think it's I think it's a very useful tool to use, especially if things are straightforward. Um, you know if if something's more acute, if someone's in a crisis, of course, seeing them in person would be better. But if something's more routine or it's telehealth or nothing, then obviously we're going to choose a telehealth appointment.
3: And that's what I want to ask you about is, is, you know, do you feel like you need to almost do a pre-screening now to see, okay, you know, Chris wants to come in today. He answered his questionnaire this way. I really need to see him in person. Rory filled out a questionnaire. He answered his questions a little bit differently. He can do, he'll do fine with a phone call or, or a FaceTime. Do you feel like that that's something that you're going to have to work into your practice? Uh, somewhat. Most
2: most of the, the, the clinics I'm at, the initial visit is in person um and so you do get to lay eyes on them and see them in the full form if you will uh for the first time and then after that you know uh it it a lot of it is convenience if if they say look you know i can only come back but it's got to be a telehealth visit of course you're going to choose that over them saying i can't come back that sort of thing so yeah it 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 uh, the, the good thing about having them come in person for the first visit is you can sort of triage and assess that
3: so you mentioned the clinics that you've been in uh, you know it, just now what 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 are you what have you been doing lately uh, so i work
2: uh i work
3: several several
2: different places uh currently i'm working um at a a, a clinic uptown i'm also working at a, a detox facility in the area um and i do some work for the the coroner's office
3: okay you mind going into some more details i mean i've got some questions about all of those really sure. if we could keep going i know sure. conrad does as well
1: my, my, the cogs are turning you shoot know? okay shoot, see it. so so let me ask you this in terms of uh, and I give you, like, like, like Letterman, a top five. If mm. you had to pick the top five things, uh, the top five mental health issues that you see in patients. Now, not the mental health world sure. as a business. But sure. if you had to pick maybe our, our top three, let's say top three, what would you say are the top three mental health issues you're seeing in patients
2: now, whether telemedicine or in person? So a lot of it's going to depend on the setting that you're in, you know, the the type of patients that you're seeing. Um, but I would say from from the patients I'm seeing, anxiety, depression, and, and substance use. Well,
1: that, that's a that's a very large portion of the top three. Yeah. Does that also go into your work, then, on the detox facilities?
2: Yeah, uh, of course, in the detox facility, it's it's almost exclusively substance use um or dual diagnosis meaning it's substance use and another psychiatric issue like depression anxiety bipolar schizophrenia something are, they, like that. are they on a lock are, are you on a lockdown unit at all uh, my particular one no i got it Okay. No, sure. so it's completely
3: voluntary they can come and go as they
2: and we'll get into that a little bit later i know rory and chris and i were talking about a lot,
1: you know cecs and pecs but we'll sure. get that in, in a little bit later and
3: Here. i've kind of gained the reputation on this podcast of always asking the COVID question so sure. i'm gonna I'll, i'm gonna stick with it um you know, what's been going on, like you mentioned, with substance abuse and, and depression, anxiety during during COVID? Have you seen what are the trends that you've seen on that? So
2: it's it's certainly worsening it. It's it's definitely not improving it. Um, you know, at the beginning of COVID, everyone was stuck at home and there's this increased level of stress. And I think that, you know, even though things have opened up more, the quarantine process is uh, is is a lot lighter than it was before. You know that stuff doesn't heal itself overnight, and so I think people are are still suffering more because of
3: COVID for sure. And do you think that is you mentioned lockdown? I mean, w- w- what's your opinion on how it's affected people with mask mandates and with you know now we're looking at vaccine mandates? Are you are you seeing that present in your population? Certainly, yeah. Uh,
2: you know the the anxiety around wearing a mask; it's it's constricting. Um, And then certainly with with the vaccine mandate, it it can be anxiety provoking for many people with with uh, for a variety of reasons. Even, you know, the the uncertainty of the vaccine or being uncomfortable with a mandate, something like that. Um, It doesn't come up as much, um, you know, in in the patients I see. Um, I don't know if they just those kind of self-select out, Um, but it it has come up from time to time. Well, let me ask you this question.
1: Uh, and it's going, I guess, going to the, the some of the heart of the matter. Maybe trending. So as we sit here, we're almost two years now. Um, now I'm asking a COVID question. Yep. So so two years now since we sort of started this journey.
3: Yeah, and th- th- I remember the end of nineteen is when this, that's right. b- It was breaking really in China, and then beginning of yeah. Well, close to almost to two years. So right. so my question
1: is right. is, is is the, the trends that we we're just talking about the. The anxiety, the depression, from whatever the mask mandates, whatever whatever mandate, whatever mandate flavor we have this week, what uh, do you see it leveling off now, or did you see a peak at
2: some point? I mean, or, or, or do you, or is, or is it just constant? Uh, I think it's leveling off. I think it's improving. Uh, I think, and I think things are starting to lighten up, and so a okay. lot of those stressors are are being lifted. Um, well, that's good. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's leveling off. That's good. That's good.
4: So uh, there's been a lot of in the news about opioid um, deaths, and especially um, I think we've hit record numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, is that COVID related? Do you think, or 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 is there some other Cause a big reason
2: is is uh, fentanyl. Um, so in the past, you would you know use heroin, and it would be heroin more or less. Um, now the the spike of fentanyl in the area is is really the problem, in my opinion. Um, you're not doing heroin; you might be doing some heroin, but you're doing a lot of fentanyl. Uh, and the problem is, is the you know. Maybe you used to know what a gram of heroin was, what it looked like. Now it looks like a gram of heroin, but it's half fentanyl, and and so that's how people are overdosing.
3: Mm. You know, Chris brought up a a really timely topic, especially here. You mentioned you're from Kenner, Mm -hmm. or you grew up in Kenner, and then just this area, there's been a lot of uh, settlement, and there's kind of the the three levels of the the defendants in the opioid epidemic. We're talking about the, the drug manufacturers, then the distributors and then the pharmacies that actually filled that actually filled them and there's been a lot of you know information going on as far as what's happened with that and one of the one of the big defendants actually just recently settled in, and we don't need to get into those details but I'd love to get your opinion on you know, the way it's been explained to us and, and different liability theories is that, you know, the the distributors or, or the companies that I'll say not distributors, the companies that made the drugs pushed them very hard for a certain populations and the distributors wanted to send those to the pharmacies that were filling them or market them to physicians. And then the pharmacies would get that information and see, you know, Dr. Chris is writing a ton of prescriptions for opioids. So they the pharmacies sold that information back up top to the drug manufacturers who then used that information and just it was kind of this endless cycle. So I'd love to kind of get, you know, your thoughts on because it, we're, we're starting to see, the the big defendants. You know, we're talking about the the Cardinal House, the the Walgreens, um Johnson and Johnson, CVS care market. A lot of them are starting to get pulled into this as well as an in, enter into settlement. So I'd love to know, you know, what kind of what you what what's your thought on the on the on the pandemic and, you know, where things went wrong. Just just kind of a general opinion on it.
2: I think <clears throat> I think you uh you touched on one of the points, and it's sort of the aggressive marketing, uh, targeted marketing. I think that's that's a lot to blame here. Um, you know, when when you're marketing any drug, I, I uh, from that perspective, I understand you're going to want to target the people who are going to use the drug, maybe, and who's going to prescribe the drug. It only you know makes sense from a money standpoint. But the aggressive and and frankly, sometimes dishonest marketing, I think, is is really the problem with all of this.
3: And you see that after, you know, it was marketed that there's been a lot of changes put in place. We have the Louisiana, it's called the PMP Prescription Monitoring mm-hmm. Program. You know, doctors are required to check that at certain visits and everything. And I think that's done That's done a lot of goodwill. Um, you know, w- do you see any issues with, with any of those programs? Or is there something that you'd love to see kind of uh, created to, to kind of, you know, help out with this pandemic or this epidemic of opioids?
2: So the PMP is a very valuable tool. Um, I use it on, on most patients in general, but especially everyone that I'm prescribing a controlled substance for. Um, you know, by nature, it's a controlled substance, so it should be controlled and, and safer. There should be more safeguards in place, and I think we weren't maybe seeing some of that, and now we are. Um, you know, before you would just prescribe it like you would any other medicine. But now with the with the prescription monitoring program, it's, it's really hard – minus them using a fake id or some some other alias that's not pulling that data it's really hard to to you know uh, prescribe over have someone doctor shop sure. if you will mm-hmm. because it'll it'll just show up readily available
3: so do you think we still need i mean i i think there's still a need for controlled substances especially for people that have that are having extensive surgeries or you know i'm obviously not a physician so i'm sure they're prescribed for many other things but you know what do you see the future of for these controlled substances post opioid epidemic i mean do we need to rein them in more or kind of what's your thoughts on that
2: so a lot of times with with the controlled substances or or medicines in general it's a pendulum You know, it was swinging from overprescribed to now it's sort of swinging the other way. You know, where people are very cautious. Sure. We may reach a point where I think you alluded to this, where maybe you know you had surgery and you don't get pain medicines that sort of thing. I don't think that's going to happen though to that extent. Um, You know, people need pain medicines. I don't know if you've ever had a surgery, but they hurt, and you need you need pain medicines to recover. I think people are being more conscious of it, which I think is one of the big things, only giving you what you need, not, you know, just refilling it ad nauseum, that sort of thing.
1: So as I regain myself after coughing my lung on the floor for a little while, <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, and, and, and I've seen this happen. I mean, I've, I've watched it at the board level. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, uh, so we have, a, the, I look at it as a pendulum in terms of opioid or controlled substances, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, where before we were we were talking, you know, as Rory was alluding to, uh, the cycle of promotion, uh, and then of course what was put out about treating the fifth vital sign, which mm-hmm. was pain, mm-hmm. right? And then suddenly, you know, everything was okay. We, we, you got to treat it. It's a fifth vital sign. You have to treat pain. And then now, right, with PMP and this epidemic, oh no, no. So it has a sw- has the pendulum swung the other way now to where we're not we don't want to we don't want to write a, any kind of controlled substances for fear i'm going to be brought in front of the board or you know do, or, or do you think we've settled back into a, a happy medium where hey we know we need to write this we have patients like you alluded to who have surgery who have pain we have to write this otherwise it's it's what's the point uh where do you think we are in the spectrum
2: are we still overcompensating where we're not writing anything or we're back to a happy middle ground uh, that's a good question, and one I don't have an answer for. Uh, my my sort of point was I, I fear that that people may be too restrictive in prescribing. Uh, they have their uses. Controlled substances have their uses. They're right. very effective for pain. And if you're post-op from a surgery and you need pain medicine, you need pain medicine. Um, and you could even make a case that not prescribing pain medicines in that case, people will just seek it out on their own anyway. So you know, under treating their pain just for fear of prescribing pain medicines may sends actually them out, Sends them yeah. out to the market.
1: Right, I got it. Yeah. That's a good point.
4: On this subject of, of medication, have you had much experience with medical marijuana? and, and with, That's with a great that, question. Um, down that road? So I have not. Um,
2: you need a, a, a special licensing process, which I haven't gone down for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially, it's it's um, I hear it's very easy though that's anecdotal mm-hmm. um, to, to get a uh, it's essentially a permission slip too it's it's illegal to prescribe marijuana so it's a it's a it's a permission slip that recommends it
4: mm-hmm. um, but no I haven't gone down that route because the legislature opened it up for chronic pain which is right. pretty pretty broad category there was right. chronic
3: pain and a catch-all I believe the last provision in the statute was anything in which your physician reasonably believed right. you would need it for so I think it could it could be prescribed for a lot.
1: You know what? The, why don't they just kick the can and just legalize it? I just don't get that. I mean, are we are, that could be I mean, another topic. Why? Why? I mean, let let let's let's. Why are we always the last place to do things that other states seem to already do and seem to have no problem you with?
3: Doctor Hanson, we don't need a specific number, obviously, no, I don't but wanna, but, I don't but wanna I'd go there. I'd love I'd love to know though. I mean, you do these intake forms. I mean, do you see a lot of your patients admitting that they're taking it for recreational or for reasons? I mean, are you seeing it a lot in your, in your patient base? You're talking
2: about ones who are prescribed or, 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 not prescribed, or, or, or rec- just recreational, use. just
3: recreational. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Recreational marijuana use. It, it, uh, it, it's shocking um how many are actually using recreational marijuana compared to that the fact that it's still illegal and the and the stigma example, is yeah.
3: i mean in my opinion i think the stigma is is pretty much gone with it i mean if people are disclosing it to their physician i think that that goes to show that, that i think the stigma's moved away where I mean if they're not afraid to tell you that they're using it and you're still going to treat them i think that right. that just goes to show
1: yeah i mean yeah. I, I, look, I i i'm playing the devil's advocate here you know, I I just – why is it – why take these baby steps? You know, just – let's just go ahead and say, you know what? Let's do what other states have done. Let's legalize it. That way we don't have the issue. We can tax out of it
2: and make some revenue. What's,
3: what's your thoughts on that, Dr. Hansen?
2: So I, I take a uh, – sort of going back to what I was saying about opiates in, the, in fentanyl right. – uh, you know if if marijuana is regulated, I think that's ideal. I think what's not ideal is if it's illegal and so you're using some synthetic marijuana to dodge a drug test or something like that and then you don't know what it is it's uh, laced with something laced who with knows? something and now you're in a, a a rabbit hole instead of just using marijuana sure. so that's that's it's almost from a, a risk reduction standpoint I think if if it prevents people from using, synthetic marijuana, which has its own problems in itself. And then also, like
3: you said, if it's laced, I think we had a a, a local story where, you know, some, some teenagers passed away from that, from laced, uh, synthetic marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned coroner's office. I'd love to hear more about that. So in Louisiana,
2: um, there's a a civil commitment process for patients who need to be involuntarily hospitalized in a, a psychiatric facility. Um, it's it's standard across every parish. Um, if if the criteria essentially is if you're deemed to be a danger to yourself, a danger to others, or uh, gravely disabled, which is defined as uh, inability to take care of yourself, essentially uh, food, water, shelter, uh, healthcare needs, stuff like that. And so, can
1: you tell? So, I know that you're talking about a PEC, correct? Yeah. So so tell the listeners. And then there's different mm-hmm. forms. Of that. There's the PEC. There's a CEC. Can you describe the differences between the two, and, and or and what other methods that you can do at your disposal
2: uh, uh, for uh, the coroner's office to help people? So a PEC, it's a physician emergency certificate. Uh, any physician can sign it. Um, essentially, it's it's holds you for a maximum of seventy two hours. At that point, the, someone from the coroner's office comes and evaluates you, and, and it, get to, it can get either. They can let you know say that you're not a danger to yourself, not a danger to others, not gravely disabled, and then you're essentially free to go.
3: And that would be you in this case going to visit these patients, and they're at a hospital or psych hospital Mm -hmm. when you would go visit them,
2: right? In the emergency room or in a hospital setting, okay, right, okay. Or they can institute in in uh, CEC, which is coroner's emergency certificate, um, which then can, uh, essentially allows the hospital to keep them for up to
3: 15 days. I see. What typically, what type of patients do you, do you go visit in these cases? Are there people that, you know, just have breakdowns or is it, you know, related to them with, with criminal acts or is it a little bit of a variety um, it's, it's, so by, by
2: definition, it needs to be due to a psychiatric condition. So you can't just be a danger to others cause you're, you know, want to kill your neighbor. If it's not due to a psychiatric condition, then it doesn't meet criteria. So essentially everyone has a psychiatric, uh, not only diagnosis, but diagnosis is causing one of those three criteria. Okay.
3: I think you knew this was coming, but. Here's my COVID question again. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any? You know, I assume that you were you were working on this, you know, prior to COVID. But mm-hmm. how has uh, COVID affected what you've seen, who you've gone to visit? You know, increase, decrease, that kind of thing.
1: I mean, on the CEC, oh, the PECs, and CECs. Yes, correct.
2: Okay. So I actually I started uh, in early 2020. So okay, right when mm. uh, COVID started. But I will say um, the if you test positive – well, right now, everyone who goes into a hospital is getting COVID tested. Okay. Uh, and if you're positive for COVID, you can't go to a psych unit. Uh, they're just not equipped to do the precautions and the uh, PPE, that sort of thing. They don't have the staffing for that. So you'll get admitted usually to a to a, just a regular medical surgical hospital floor, and then essentially you'll receive psychiatric care from there, which is uh, – it's, it's not good mm-hmm. um, okay. A lot of times if you for example Have someone who's very delusioned um, Schizophrenic Bipolar something like that And you have these delusions of, of About something that's not true A lot of times part of the treatment is both medication But also a lot of uh, insight Reality based uh, uh, Reminding If you will And so if you're stuck in a room and no one can visit you Because your room is COVID locked down You can see that's, that's difficult Oh.
1: Interesting, and, and, and another thing I wanted to ask you, and this might pivot a little bit
2: mm-hmm.
1: from because I know Rory loves COVID. Yeah, I, 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 I always, and I, and I guess this, this just could segue into a much longer, sh- you know, different kind of show. Mm-hmm. But social media and its effects on young, and have you seen anything with respect to the online bullying, the you know. And I guess I, I, the reason I asked this, I recently heard about a situation like this with one of my friends and his children, and 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 so I'm curious. In your practice, have you seen uh, the social media effects on mental health with children? Is that prevalent still? Uh, very common. Very common. Unfortunately,
2: yes. Um, you know, cases as 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 benign, if you will, which it isn't benign, but. From from, you know, a severity standpoint, just simple bullying, for example, that's one thing. But then others are uh, they're suicidal and they cut themselves because of something that happened on social media, for example, whether it was something someone said, a picture that was shared. Right. Something like that. It's very common. And it's. It's hard to it's hard to to talk to these kids, you know, because we grew up in a, a different time where it wasn't as important. So it's hard for us to say, oh, that's you know, it's just Facebook, ignore that, that sort of thing. Because to them, it's important. You know, this is what everyone's doing. That's 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 the the age they live in. Right. So it's 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 tough. It's tough.
3: So from that standpoint, those patients that you would see, I mean, is it something that obviously you know medication can assist, but is it more of lifestyle or patterns of you know them getting off of it or their parents making them get off of it or yeah, or you know yeah. w- what's the course of action for that cuz I, I mean i have a lot of friends and i've got a a 9-year-old who's already asking about it and I I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole with him yet. Right. But you know, you know, what do you do for patients that's like that? That's a
1: great question. I mean, I love what would you tell parents? I mean,
2: you know, parents with children, what would you recommend with social media and kill and children? You know, that's a difficult question because there's there's no right answer. Um it's it's so prevalent in their life. Everyone at school has one. And so then you know, it's almost a risk of do you just just ban it outright or do you lo- allow them to have one and then teach them the healthy ways to use sure.
3: it? Sure, because if they don't have one, then they're going to be they're the, the out outsider right. and not yeah. included on things. But then if they do have one, then it's – Everything that we know that's going right. on with or
2: it, or they'll get one and you don't know about it. Right, so then that, that's you, what I was. Then you about. can't police them. You can't, and police is the wrong word. But you can't keep an eye on it. You can't help them learn how to manage it safely because that's what the big thing is. They're going to have one eventually,
3: sure, right. whether
2: you know about it or not. And so, ideally, you would be able to to, to sort of help them navigate that in a, a safe way. And I think, let me tell you, I think I, I know this is sort of pivoting
1: off topic in this show, but mm-hmm. but I think this would be a good. Thing to bring Eric back, absolutely, and, and, and maybe even pair that with uh, uh, the anti-bullying statute. We can get some of the, you know, some from the district attorney's office talk about bullying and, and things like that to help parents understand what they can do. Because sure. I, I, I think this is a lot bigger. It, it's all I think it's getting it's growing. Absolutely. You know, I already thought it was bad, but I think it, it continues to, to you know, parents just don't know.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 like you said, and we're now going off into the social media. We could talk about this for while well, I mean I, I think Well this is what
1: happens when we have coffee with, yeah. with Dr. Hansen. Yeah. You know,
3: we've we've seen the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, and, and the, the two people from Google have, not have gone on to do numerous podcasts like this. And I mean you know, what what they're showing is that And they go into very much detail that I'm sure you would understand. I don't. But but the the social media, the algorithms, they really want to manipulate your brain to where you're on that thing as long as possible and scrolling as much as possible. And I'm sure it's been said before, but I'd love to get – your opinion on just the social media in in general? I mean, I think it's a necessary evil per se. I think all of our kids are going to have it. I mean, I don't know if you have children or not yet, but, you know, kind of what, what's your plan for that? Or what do you tell your patients?
2: So, you know, a lot of times, and this is, this is sort of the answer for a lot of things in this realm is, is healthy use of it is going to be important. And then also, you know, other kids are going to post stuff, you know, what's going to happen and, right. and teaching your kid how to not let, so we can't control what other people post. Um, you know, you can't control someone else, but you can control right. how it affects you. That's and, very true. and so learning how to manage that is, is the big thing. And, and I mean, that, that can go on from, from social media and then not social media topics, uh, learning, you know, not letting other people, uh, their actions affect you in a, in a, a wrong way. Um, but, um, yeah, it's – it's as far as what's my plan for, for, for my kid, I have a one-year-old. Um, I don't know. That's You've got a, a little question. bit of time. Yeah. You've got a little bit of time. Terrifying. Out on it yet. Terrifying. Right. Don't, it is Just terrifying.
4: Don't teach him to read. Right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That'll solve it. So if I could redirect back to sort of mental health that we started, if if you had all power and you could change two or three things, you know, unilaterally – with With the state of mental health either in the community or the state, what would you what would you do?
2: so one of the big things is availability of psychiatrists in this area, and that really comes down to residency spots. Um, it's a, a federal law that that limits those, um, and so if we could expand that, we could train more psychiatrists and, and it, that wouldn't be a problem. Um, from there, the the sort of what we've been talking about the substance use. You know, if if you're trying to treat, for example, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and they're using substances actively, I mean, you have no shot. You know, it's it's you're it's an uphill battle, and um, you know you're at a severe disadvantage. Mm-hmm. That's interesting.
3: really interesting. You know, one thing that that I just wanted to get your opinion on before we wrap this episode up is if you know if we if we have a friend or a listener or a colleague that we think is having kind of the mental health issues are starting to see depression, anxiety, you know, whatever it may be you know, is it best for them to start with reaching out to a psychiatrist like yourself or a social worker, psychologist? I mean, you know, what, what, what kind of do you recommend? Because I know that there's dueling schools of thought. Some people think, you know, psychiatrists only write scripts. Psychologists, they only talk. Social workers, they're not, you know, as a level of you are. So I'd love to kind of get your, your guidance on, on those people that are listening or that might have a friend that they're, they're thinking about might need some help.
2: So uh, to take it to to the extreme so so and then I'll kind of work backwards from there you know if you, if you think someone is is suicidal for example and, and may be a harm to themselves we talked about the PEC and the CEC there isn't an, an OPC an order of protective custody which we didn't talk about that you yeah. you go to the coroner's office and you say look I'm witnessing my friend doing XYZ I think he's a danger to himself or he's not taking care of himself that sort of thing and then it's sort of a no questions asked, which has its benefits and its its downsides. But uh, someone, a, a police officer, will go get them. So if, if someone is not wanting to get treatment, but you think they need to be admitted to a hospital, um, you can file an OPC. That doesn't guarantee they're going to be admitted. What it does, it guarantees they go to a, an emergency room. At that point, someone from an emergency room, a, a physician there, will evaluate them and determine – whether they they can go home and manage this on an outpatient basis, or whether this needs a PEC, for example. Um, so less severe than that, if someone is is sort of just depressed, anxious, that sort of thing, having a, a hard time. Actually, most of the psychiatric care is actually done by primary care doctors. Um, you know, every I don't want to say everyone. More people have a primary care doctor than they do a psychiatrist. So that's that's where most of, that's sort of the front lines, really. Because of that, you know, and the, and the issue with getting access to a, a, a mental health care, you know, going to your primary care doctor is a perfectly legitimate option, mm-hmm. uh, and and the idea being is that they. If they feel comfortable managing it, then they can sort of get that ball rolling quicker than if they were waiting four months to get in with a psychiatrist, that sort of thing. Right. As far as the medication and therapy, you know, the data shows that both is better than one or the other. So, you know, if someone just wants therapy and not medication, that's better than nothing and vice versa with medication and not therapy. But truly therapy plus medication is 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 ideal. That's good. Well, well I want to thank uh – Rory and Chris for the uh, wonderful
1: show today, but most importantly, thank Dr. Eric Hansen for stopping by. Uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for us today. Again, coffee with Dr. Eric Hansen, uh, PGY, soon to be, uh, what, psychiatrist out in the field? Yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. That's good. That's good. Well, thank you very much for stopping by today. And look, everyone, we really appreciate you uh, being part of the show. Uh, Drop us a line, leave a comment if you want, Uh, send us an email. Uh, if you want to hear a certain topic on it. But again, thank you very much for joining another episode of Health Law Talks. Have a great weekend and enjoy.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel. Make sure to give us that five-star rating and share with your friends. Shahardi Sherman-Williams is providing this podcast as a public service. This podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice, nor does this podcast establish an attorney-client relationship. Reference to any specific product or entity does not count as an endorsement or recommendation by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance does not imply an endorsement of them or their entity that they represent. Remember, please consult an attorney for your specific legal issues.